Welcome to Cinemascope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to Cinemascope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to Cinemascope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Tree removal, man. (laughs) Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, Uh, What are we talking about tonight, Andy? Movies. Have you seen uh, Have you seen San Andreas yet? I haven't. Me neither. I was almost in it today, but uh, work intervened. Man, oh, I was close. That's too bad. I know. I know. Uh, but uh, I do want to talk about, uh, man, Blot comes out oh, of yeah. the woodwork in a big way. It was quite exciting. The good Ben Lott. I am so excited about this email that he sent us. Uh, ben Lott. You may remember Ben Lott from the Blot score of a while back, and then he went quiet. We didn't hear from him for some time, and it turns out, now I know the reason why, this email opens, well, 
It took me just over 14 months, but I've finally done it. I have now watched, rated, reviewed, and flick-charted every single movie you guys have covered on the next reel, with the exception of The Thin Man, which I'll be watching in a day or so because it was not available from Netflix. That's right, 185 movies I watched thanks to you guys. Check that out. That's awesome. I know. So this, uh, and and I should add, his... um, Let's see, his flick chart username, for those who want to catch up with uh, Blot, Ben Lott, Blot 2013 on, and his letterboxed username is Blot. Now, we like Blot, Ben Lott. He has great taste in movies when he agrees with us. <laughs> and I, he, this email that he wrote us, I just read just a snippet because he goes on and on and on and compares category by category his... Uh, top flick chart rankings to ours in great detail. For example, top six movies you like much more than me. Top six movies I like much more than you. And and it really points out, uh, you know, where we have uh, fallen short. Uh, top six uh, or top four movies that we rank exactly the same. Who knew this was going to happen? Yeah, right. Adaptation hits both our charts at 87. Zodiac hits both our charts at 39. Misery, both our charts at 29. And the Bishop's Wife, both our charts at 154. What are the odds of that? I know, I know. somebody's going to calculate the odds of that. Somebody will. Probably, I would say, uh, 4 in 185. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, to, just if I had to... You're a mathematical yes. genius. <laughs> uh, he also has the top five favorite movies that he watched for the first time, thanks to us. This is the what I like to call the list of honor. Uh, Up in the Air, Jaws, The Fisher King, Compulsion, and Panic Room. I love that list. Uh, It's a great list. My bottom five least favorite movies that I would have happily never seen if it weren't for us. (laughs) (laughs) This is also a good list. The Day of the Locust. (laughs) I love that one. Know, it's crazy. It's a yet, wacky, wacky movie. I, <laughs> and yet, I get his point. Uh, I do too. <laughs> Strange Days. I think we would agree. Uh, I would. Yes, level. I would. Yee uh, Yee. I, I think we we probably part ways on that I, one. I really enjoy that. I'm one. I'm with Blot on that one. Uh, knowing. Well, that's I, a guilty pleasure. What are you gonna do? Yeah, I know it is. <laughs> and Labor Day. I don't know how you could shun. A uh, James Vanderbeek vehicle like that, but but he managed <laughs> well, to do it. <laughs> maybe by next year he'll have two more of our guilty pleasures to add on to that list. <laughs> I can't wait. This was uh, this was a really enormously gratifying. I mean, it's it, I think it's the single best bit of feedback I think we've ever gotten on the show. Oh, absolutely! It was fun to read. It was fascinating to read. Lots of interesting statistical bits about uh, favorites and, yeah. and least favorites and all that. And it was just—it was fun. It's you know, it's fun to see somebody kind of uh, you know playing along, so to speak. Oh, I loved it. It was—it was really uh, an honor to read that. And he has actually agreed. Uh, ben has agreed to uh, let us guest post that on our blog. So his, uh, the, if you're interested in the blot score, hopefully we're going to be hearing even more from Ben now that he's caught up. Uh, because he's, his opinion is one that we value. So um, Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so that'll be on the blog uh, when the show goes live. If you're listening to the show right now, you could jump over to the blog. You could read uh, Ben's full uh, post, which is uh, perfectly great. And then, you know, he, he now that you can tell he caught up, because he started, he started commenting on our movies again. Right, you're right, yes. And he already gave us a little bit of a spanking. What did, you, tell, what did he say about... Uh, 
uh, for our Mad Max. About Fury Road. Uh, did yeah, you feel I, the shame? <laughs> I, I did. I felt the shame a little bit afterward. The fact that it jumped so high on our uh, flick chart ranking. And yes, uh, he, he may be right that uh, perhaps it was a little bit too fresh in our minds being a new release and everything that we got a little excited, a little carried away. <laughs> that might have happened. I, uh, <laughs> I think it just may have. Um, but he called it a silly chase movie, Andy. Yeah, well, right. And for that, we're I, maybe we should just leave it where it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes, this was the comment on uh, on uh, Mad Max Fury Road, which you know still is high on my list. It ended up landing at number five in our flick chart uh, ranking. But I have to admit, this is part of the uh, shame of flick chart when it works it works really well but in this case it didn't come up against some movies that we would obviously have ranked it beneath right, right? i mean there, there are some movies in there that i would that it, it just ended up getting shuffled up as number five because of the movies that it hit i think yeah i think so so i think so um, that's a good excuse i'll stick with it that's what i that's the one i've been hanging <laughs> my hat on this week so. uh in any case uh big big huge big thanks to to ben for for playing along and being a part of the community. We sure appreciate it. Uh, any, do Absolutely. we have any other news? I don't think that, uh, I don't think we have any other news. I don't think we do. Let's tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? This is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello! And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the second in our series on the black and white work of cinematographer James Wong Howe with Sam Wood's 1942 film, King's Row. But uh, before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe for free on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're the kind of person who pulls wings off of flies and legs off of spiders, then you're also the kind of person who should head over to Instagram.com slash the next reel and play the next reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. Andy, how did we do against these diabolical doctors this week? This was a fun week because uh, it threw people a little bit, particularly uh, Jojo Lee 23 who was was awfully specific in her guess. Um, uh, on image three, she guessed that it was the time machine with Rod Taylor being very specific as to which one. And unfortunately, she was wrong because it was actually the time machine with Guy Pierce. And if she had only said the time machine, then we probably would have given it to her. But because of her specificity, she missed it until image five, when she finally was able to figure out, oh, it's the time machine with Guy Pierce. Uh, so luckily, her guess on day three did not clue anyone else in, and it threw everybody uh, and gave her two more days to figure it out. And yes, day five, Jojo Lee 23 figured out that it was the time machine with Guy Pierce. Terrible, terrible film. But uh, it was uh, it did provide for a fun week of Instagram guessing, and Jojo Lee 23 is once again entered to win our 2015 Pony Prize. That, that was like the best rebound shot. <laughs> ever <laughs> was <laughs> that was the best that was the best that was uh and and in our back channel i love the back channel between you and steven smart <laughs> running this contest in the back channel say like, oh should we give it to her oh let's see if she gets it <laughs> this is great i am uh i'm really glad that she came back around and got that one and got entered again congratulations absolutely absolutely so fun. yep uh with that andy Let's do trailers. 
I'm saying this may not be the sequel to the Bourne films that we wanted, but it's the sequel to the Bourne films that we deserved, Andrew. Kristen Stewart, <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg, Connie Britton, Topher Grace, Bill Pullman, John Leguizamo, Walton Goggins. These people have come together under the pen of Max Landis, the pen behind one of our faves, Chronicle, and oh, director yeah. uh, Nima Norizade. Mm-hmm. The man behind Project X, crazy found footage party film from uh, 2012. Do you ever see that one? I didn't. I missed that one. Bananas. Was it? Yeah, it was great. I, I had a great time watching it. It was one of those sort of aspirational films. Anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. Uh, these people came together, and they bring us the story of a stoner who is actually a well-trained government agent, <laughs> and he doesn't know it. I love the comedy of this trailer. I love the tone of this trailer. I love the cast of this trailer. I love the wonderful stoner underdog takes on the man vibe of this trailer. You can absolutely count me in when this opens late this summer, August 21st. I just killed two people. <laughs> That's awesome. They had guns and knives and they were being like total dicks. Did you call the cops? No, I didn't call the police because I have like a lot of weed and like mushrooms in my car. How did this happen? I don't know, but I'm like freaking out all over the place, babe. I have a lot of anxiety about this. What did you think of Jesse Eisenberg's uh, stoner action hero? I thought he was perfect. Uh, he was brilliantly cast in the role. I mean, this, you know, I was not a fan of Pineapple Express, but this looks like everything that I wanted Pineapple Express to be. Oh, I'm so <laughs> glad you said that. I couldn't remember what what movie I was thinking about. That this, that I that, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, it's a, that one. Just kind of devolved into just some dumb humor. This one looks to be more focused on the action and it just happens to take place in the world of a stoner who is this <laughs> super spy and has no clue and i love the concept i love uh just both him and Kristen stewart this may be like a perfect casting for for Kristen stewart also she there's something about her she always just looks stoned anyway so <laughs> that is so true that is really true I think it's going to be uh, pretty brilliant. So I can't wait to see this one. I am very excited about it. So once again, late summer, August 21st. Uh, and and now I feel like I've had a preview. I've been the preview to your preview. It looks, uh, it looks like one that you really want to see on an IMAX screen or the biggest thing that you possibly can. This is Everest, the adventure drama thriller coming out in September that uh, is about the climate ex- expedition on Mount Everest where uh, the big snowstorm came in and there were two parties up there um, trying to get to the top and all of a sudden this storm rolled in and all these people are trying to figure out what to do. Um, the cast of this, uh, like every single person in it, every time they cut to another face, I was very excited. It just it didn't stop. Jake Gyllenhaal, Keira Knightley, Robin Wright, Josh Brolin, Jason Clark, Sam Worthington... Emily Watson, John Hawks, one of my favorites. It's just tons of great people in this in this thriller about these people trapped on Mount Everest and trying to survive. It looks gripping. It looks frightening. Um, the cinematography just looks stunning and beautiful, but at times uh, just not <laughs> like the the worst place to be in the world. And it looks like uh, it does look like. An IMAX film, but it's actually a narrative film. And so it, it just really, uh, the production value of it is very high. It's directed by uh, Baltazar Kormakur. Uh, I'm not quite sure if I'm saying that right. He is uh, Icelandic from Reykjavik. 
and uh, he's the guy who is behind Two Guns and Contraband. I didn't see either of those films. Neither of them uh, spoke to me when I saw the trailers. Uh, did you see either of those, Pete? Uh, no. 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 So I can't speak to uh, Baltazar's work. But this one looks pretty stunning. Uh, written by uh, uh, the screenplays by William Nicholson and Justin Isbell with a story by Simon Beaufoy, Lem Dobbs, and Mark Madoff. I know there's a lot of mountaineering experience in this room. You wouldn't be here without it. But Everest is the most dangerous place on Earth. Human beings simply aren't built to function at the cruising altitude of a 747. Our bodies will be literally dying. So the game is, can we get you up to the top, down to the bottom, before that happens? I was blown away. I Did you read the book, Into Thin Air? This was based on the Krakauer book, Into Thin Air. Um, I didn't read the book. That's I, one of those books that I never got around to. Totally on on my list, um, and now even more so. I think this was also the story um, that, you know, for the nerds, I think this was the one that where the New York Times did that beautiful, beautiful um, uh, storytelling piece with the like integrated media and pictures and slideshows and things all in this long scrolling article. It was just gorgeous. Uh, I think this is the same one. So this story has been told a number of times, and yet this film, um, it, it it just, as you said it, I mean, it looks like an IMAX film that just begs to be seen on the biggest of the biggest of the biggest screens. It Absolutely. Was, it was stunning. It's a stunning trailer. Yeah. It, it, everything about it is just, I mean, it looks like they were filming an IMAX documentary is right. what it looks like, but it happens to be this story about the, uh, yeah, the... Uh, uh, the Mount Everest disaster back in uh, when was that ninety six? Ninety six, yeah. yeah. Uh, the nineteen ninety six season expedition recorded eight deaths, the third most deaths on a single day. Um, the two thousand fifteen Nepal earthquake caused the most eighteen deaths, uh, mm. and unfortunately, Krakauer's guides Rob Hall and Andy Harris both died. So the, you know, we kind of know. You read the Wikipedia page, you know that this, uh, you know, kind of know how it ends. Um, but it's boy, does it look great just beautiful film work this is one of the films that is on the real 3d list yes shot with 3d cameras so i am um, fascinated by how they make this movie i i can't that i'm almost looking forward to that more than i'm looking forward to the movie that's not in, true of course that's complete hyper, <laughs> hyperbole uh, but i'm gonna let it stand out there yeah no i i hear you it's one that's be very interesting to see the behind the scenes yeah yeah like were they just walking on little green screen planks, and the whole everything was created around them? Were they filming? I like I just don't know enough about about uh, what they were actually doing to get this movie made. The whole thing filmed on location in on Mount Everest. Yeah. So when did you say it opens? September eighteenth. I will be there. Me too. Why, Andy? Yes. I don't know how a girl as pretty as you can be so practical. Did you read King's Row? I never read such a fascinating story. When a boy who belongs uptown starts taking a girl from the lower end of town out buggy riding at night, people talk. My marriage to that had shut their traps. I wouldn't marry you, Drake. We were going to run away. She'd been getting out to meet me for a long time. Do I need to say anything more? Did Dr. Tower know anything about this? I guess I wouldn't be here today if he had. Don't 
don't... Even now, don't say anything you don't mean. I don't even know how I feel about you. Dr. Tower, I'm going to ask you a question perhaps you won't like answering. Is Dr. Gordon a good doctor? Not a very tactful question, young man. Not a very ethical one for a young doctor to be to ask. Ever since I can remember, I've noticed things. Drake finds out. He'll never find out. Yes, he will. She'll come again or someone else will. That kind of news always gets home. That would. King's Row, Andrew, 1942. A film directed by Sam Wood, written by Casey Robinson, based on the book by Henry Bellaman. Uh, the film stars the uh, lovely Ann Sheridan, Robert Cummings, and uh, former President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, along with Betty Field, Charles Coburn, Claude Rains, Dave Anderson, Nancy Coleman, Karen Byrne. Uh, it, it's got a, oh, uh, Harry Davenport, it's Colonel Skeffington. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic cast in a film about... Uh, it's about a lot of bananas dark stuff that I had a really hard time rationalizing in my head as a movie from 1942. <laughs> right? Yes. Now, yes. neither of us had seen this movie, so this is a single viewing conversation, right? Did you happen to watch it twice? I didn't. I didn't I, have time. I did not either. So this is a one-time view for both of us. So really, it's a, it's, it's a first impressions kind of a conversation. It is, but you're right. For 1942, I mean, the notes that I took go from what a dark story to, ah, oh, what sweet simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's bananas. My final note was uh, King's Row, a triumph for the mental health profession. <laughs> like, where does that come from? This was just a bananas movie. I was I was slacking you throughout the movie, just telling you how bananas I thought this movie was. It is all over the place. The book apparently is even more uh, bananas for being written in the period. It is uh, dark. It is about sex and incest and and just and and other uh, weird things that go on in small towns. Well, and big towns and big towns, <laughs> things that go on in towns. Full of people. Things that go on anywhere there's people. <laughs> but nobody uh, likes to talk about it. <laughs> can you, do you think it is possible uh, to give just a brief uh, summary of what you recall as the film being about? Well, sure, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is a film that takes place uh, right at the turn of the century, the previous century. It starts in 1890, and I believe it goes through about... 1905 or so? Well, that was late 18, no, very late 18, very late teen, 1800s. No, 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 it passes because remember he writes Century on the, uh, you know, Happy New Year, Happy yeah. Century. Oh, you were talking about century. when it ends. Yeah, I wasn't paying attention to you. Just right. it, start, it starts in, in 1890. And yeah, right, yeah, you're it right. Runs right. into I think 1905 or so. Yes. Yeah. Um, although it could be longer, but um, violent agreement. It is basically about a group of people. Uh, who grow up in this small town where there happen to be uh, a lot of dark things happening, dark secrets, dark stories. And we follow several of them as they kind of grow and change and uh, see how this town changes through time. Paris is our one of our main characters who grows up to become a doctor focusing on psychiatry mm -hmm. or psychology. One of the very first. Yeah. And then his good friend Drake 
is kind of the uh, the young, uh, I don't know if I'd call him a scoundrel, but he certainly um, loves the ladies, and uh, and he kind of grows up under the shadow of rich relatives and uh, and then loses all of his money, and life uh, takes a very dark turn for him. Then you have Cassie, a young girl who grows up with her father uh, taken out of school, and uh, she's friends with Paris, but uh, he doesn't know why she's taken out of school. As they, as he gets older and and re befriends her, he learns about her. Well, I don't know if he really learns about her dark secrets, but she definitely has darkness in her life, and uh, her story gets incredibly dark. <laughs> yeah, she's she's got some issues as as she's killed by her father, who then kills himself. <laughs> And then, uh, then there's Randy. 1942. <laughs> and then there's Randy, who uh, is the girl who lives on the, uh, the the other side of the tracks. A little bit more of a tomboy, yet she and Drake, who lives on the money side of the tracks, uh, they kind of end up connecting later in the story. And uh, and yeah, it's it's there. It's the story primarily, I guess, of those people as they grow and change and they see the world changing around them in this town of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, supposedly modeled after um, uh, Balaman's uh, hometown of Fulton, Mississippi. Uh, so many apologies, uh, Fulton listeners, uh, for what I hope you are not living with today. Apparently, uh, yeah, the townspeople realized after the book came out, it didn't take too long before they started realizing, <laughs> wait a minute, this I sounds a little guy. too familiar. <laughs> and I don't think, uh, I don't think that Bellaman was, uh, was liked too much after all of that. Wow. Sorry, I had to yawn. Oh. <laughs> I'll cut that out. Um, so... Uh, on your first viewing, did you like this film? I actually did like this film. This was a film that I watched it, and I think I, you know, in my head, I kind of gave it like three stars. And then the more I kept thinking about it, it, it like kind of stuck in my craw a little bit. And it's just, I kept thinking about it and going back to it. And I ended up bumping it up a little bit. So it's probably like three and a half stars now. Um, I liked it. I found it really interesting. I really liked the characters. I like. I really connected with these characters as uh, as a little bit, um, particularly Paris, as a little bit um, uh, kind of schmaltzy. Uh, he can be sometimes a little bit over uh, passionate, over excited about things. Uh, you know, he he kind of come across that way. But somehow it kind of all fit. I just really liked the characters. I liked this world and. I think it was this the dark element of it that really kind of drew me in. It was something that I hadn't seen before from, at least I don't think I have, from a film from the 40s. It really just kind of stuck with me. And then when I started learning more about the book, it made me really wish for somebody to to pick it up and, and adapt it again for modern audience so they, they could put in all of the different things about like there's... There's a, a story plot line dealing with homosexuality. There's a story plot line dealing with, um, I think he actually ends up euthanizing his grandmother. I think it's a mercy killing. Yeah. Um, there's the, uh, uh, you learn more specifically in the book about how Cassie's father is actually, uh, has, you know, is, there's incest going on in that relationship. She's right. not just schizophrenic, but her father, you know, is also molesting her. 
And then there's also the the fact that Cassie, it went, once she kind of connects with Paris, that he gets her pregnant. And that's one of the reasons she wants to run away and then doesn't. And then her father kills her. And, and then there's also just all the apparently nymphomania dealing with Drake and the fact that he's just sleeping with pretty much all the women in town. Now, one of the things that came out uh, in this film, this was a very difficult film to, to make uh, at the time because of, uh, as we've, we've talked uh, so much before, of the Hayes Code. And uh, in this case, taking a book like this with all of these references to homosexuality and euthanasia and incest and nymphomania and, I, I mean, it just... Uh, uh, crazy uh stuff to be talking about on in the mainstream on the big screen in 1942 it's just bananas that the producer uh hal wallace uh, would have bought this would have have acquired this property and said i think we can make this into a movie just crazy to do this i don't think they did a terribly good job excising all of these inferences all of these uh, uh, elements of the film i came away from the film really seeing just how well this darkness is implied in in the film. Do you feel like it was sufficiently sterilized without no, having researched well, it? No, I, I this is what I... Uh, there's an interesting benefit to the Hayes Code that I find in some of these films when you watch them now with modern eyes, that looking at the film, it ends up creating so much more subtext. Yes. And... It makes it, in a way, much more interesting to watch because they can't actually say a lot of this stuff. And it's all just inferred, and it's in looks, and it's in these moments. And and I end up really liking that in some of these films that uh, really were hiding stuff, uh, covering it up right. because it's, of the haze It's code. the Jaws effect, right? I mean, it's scarier yeah. because you don't see it. Absolutely. Right? And this film, I think, is a testament to that. It is a darker film because all of these horrible moral issues these dis- the the complexities of these moral issues that the film attempts to take on that the text took on directly they all have to be uh, inferred by the audience and i think that is uh, I, I think that's a it, it ends up making a more interesting film even you know whether it's enjoyable to you or not uh, it is a much more interesting film and i think it makes the 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 performances that much more complex. I, I don't know what I expected from the performances, but I didn't expect that. I, I know I was pleased with the depth of, of some of the more challenging performances, particularly Cassandra uh, and, uh, and, and I, you know, Ron Reagan, who in the beginning of the film is, comes off as, as something of a lightweight, but ends up turning in quite a, a performance. As he says, it's the, you know, it's a film that made him a star. Well, and everybody, you know, from everything that I've read, everybody says this is his best performance that he ever gave. And right. I, I've only seen a handful of his films, but I thought he was fantastic in this film. I completely agree. Cassie was great. Uh, he was great. And uh, was it Louise, uh, the other girl that, uh, that Drake liked, whose parents, yeah, it was Louise, whose parents hated him yeah. because he was such a philanderer. Um, she also... Nancy Coleman gave a really interesting performance of Louise as she was dealing with the conflict of wanting to be with this guy, but having to succumb to uh, the decisions of her parents, uh, i.e., you are not allowed to be with that boy because he is a bad influence. And there were some just painful scenes, like when her her father, uh, Dr. Gordon, tells her, 
you are not allowed to ever see him, and she's going to defy him. And he says, if you do, I will have you committed before you get to see right. that boy. It's like, wow. And then just and then dealing with her as she's kind of like almost driven insane by these parents. Of yes, yes. You know, there's this other layer on top of it, and I think this it, it makes this film more interesting to me, which is the, you know, just because of the time in which it is set, there are these little hints, uh, you know, the the one line that I wrote down, and I um, I can't remember the words exactly. It, it's the it's I think it's Colonel um, Skeffington mm-hmm. uh, who is talking about how great it is that uh, when Drake leaves, uh, he says, "Gosh, I, I really like that because he's the one who who always says sir to his elders." Yeah. Right. There is this sense of that this film is really trying to put shine a light on this idea of the way uh, the way things were. Right. The grace and the politeness and the civility and the culture uh, that we once celebrated. And now over the course of a couple of months in this film, we see everything through the through the lens of these elders. We see everything falling apart in their view uh, culturally. And I think that ends up being a. a a really interesting thing to watch, even if, you know, I think where the film, where I have trouble with the film is that all, all of these, you know, couples and, and couplings are kind of hard to keep track of, right? Particularly Drake, who are the women in this film that he's, that are in orbit of his character that we need to keep track of? Uh, I I think it was just uh, Louise and Randy. Yeah, I know. But then it starts with uh, it starts with Poppy. You know, or we supposed well, to keep up with her and the thing. I mean, I know it's just it's it's here. It is. We're going to show you know what his life is like. But I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to pay attention to him in the beginning. Uh, I you know the the families the two doctors uh, I, I end up getting you know, found myself getting confused between who's the now which one is the is the uh, is the one that's killing people and which is the one that's the <laughs> that's the dealing with the incest like I you know it was it was kind of hard to keep track of it so I found that kind of confusing it bounced it, it felt like it bounced around a lot and and I'm sure that that would resolve on another viewing I, I'm sure I would figure that out. Um, yeah, yeah, you might. I, I mean, I didn't really have too much of a problem connecting some of the that stuff. Um, so it, you know, I, I think that that's stuff that would definitely clear up on multiple things. Yeah. But but none, even through all of that, none of it really mattered to me because what I when the film ended in the credits roll, I found myself saying that is a love letter to an era that they will never have again, and it's something that. I, I feel like I can't relate to, you know, the Victorian era, saying goodbye to the Victorian era. Uh, but I can absolutely see how um, this would be something that uh, that they would really celebrate in the period in which it was made. Um, and it, it feels a little bit like me watching, you know, The Breakfast Club. Well, it's uh, interesting that this, I believe, came out the same year as The Magnificent Ambersons, Orson Welles' mm-hmm. uh, follow-up to Citizen Kane, because it's exactly the same uh, topic. It's dealing with the progression of time and how things change and how it affects this, uh, the Ambersons, the family. And so in this case, it was more just how it affected this group of people in this, and really this town. But um, yeah, it was interesting kind of thinking of those two films happening right at the same time here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do we know of Sam Wood, the director? Um, Sam Wood, uh, you know, I don't know a whole lot about him, but I believe, didn't he direct shortly before this? I don't know how much uh, longer uh, or how much before this. Um, he had directed an adaptation of Our Town. Yeah, just a couple was, of years, 1940. Yeah, which was another 
a film that was very much kind of about a town and people in it, although nowhere near as dark. So it's kind of interesting that uh, that he is uh, the man behind two of those films. Right. Uh, I have you seen any uh, much other stuff from Sam Wood? Um, I have seen. Uh, I know I've seen a few things of his. He has a strange, uh, uncredited uh, role as uh, director of Gone with the Wind. Ew. I don't yeah, know. I don't... I don't know the the you know story behind behind that. We obviously haven't been researching Gone with the Wind, but it's uh, it just popped up as I was researching earlier today. Uh, I thought that was interesting. It's yeah, funny I mean, because I didn't know much about Sam Wood, and yet I find I've seen more films than I'm than uh, than I thought. I don't think I've seen. Uh, I mean, looking through, I mean, it's it's pretty. I mean, he's got eighty two director credits, pretty pretty lengthy. I mean, he started back in the in nineteen twenty in the silent days, and I don't think that I've really seen much of his, if anything, of his. I did see some of Queen Kelly. I think he came. Well, I saw Queen Kelly. So I saw some of his uncredited directing that he did uh, when he came in to fill in for um, uh, Eric von Stroheim, who I believe was uh, uh, that was taken out of his hands. And other than that, I, I want to say it was just the uh, the Marx Brothers movies that are really the only ones that I've probably seen of his. I, uh, I, I actually write in a row in, in the late 30s and 40s. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Uh, Gone with Wind, obviously, Our Town, uh, Devil and Miss Jones, and then uh, King's Row now, and Pride of the Yankees right after that. So right in a row, Devil and Miss Jones, King's Row, and, and Pride of the Yankees. Uh, and that surprised me because I, you could have given me those movies and I would not have been able to tell you that Sam Wood directed it. Directed yeah, it. sure. Um, but I found myself really enjoying this film. And as you said, uh, you know, the complexities of the story aside... Um, it was, it, it moved right along at two hours and I think seven minutes. It didn't, it didn't feel that long to me. It felt like a story that, uh, that moved right along. It also felt like a story that was in, that, that was, there was a really natural intermission, uh, right in the middle. It sort of changed tone and I was able to get up and do the dishes and not feel like, uh, I was jumping <laughs> out of the, out of the, uh, scene. It's sort of, uh, uh it, it was a nice split. Yeah. It did kind of, uh, it did kind of work right at the, uh, little time transition there yeah. in the middle. Yeah, yeah, around Vienna when, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yes, when he goes Paris, Paris goes to Vienna uh, to learn to be a doctor. Yes. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's talk about some some people, shall we? Yeah, let's. You want to start with Paris? Let's start with Paris. How, Good how old. Do you do, how do you do for you? Uh, Robert Cummings I, was you know he was very chipper. <laughs> yes, he was. He was a very uh, just effervescent guy and initially i was like okay he might be a little over the top but as i continued watching him it really ended up kind of fitting for the role because his role was one of almost like the most innocent in the story you know he the way that he approached everything and not innocent like naive but just innocent as if he might have been because like you were saying earlier he's the guy that skeffington comments he always uh, says sir his grandmother has trained him in classical piano he almost feels like somebody who is almost born of their era rather than of this current era and so he just has this presence about him i i think you're right and i think he he plays actually an interesting contrast to ronald reagan's character 
uh, of Drake, who is the, you know, he's kind of the money man, he's the the womanizer, and he is also the man of that era, right? I mean, what all he's thinking about, you know, in contrast to Paris, who's thinking about, you know, medicine and taking care of the town and the things that we can do to, to you know, heal a town through the power of medicine. Uh, we have Drake, who's thinking about how can I get this housing development, on, you know, get investors right. for this housing development, which is which is you know taking that small town and churning up the soil and creating something new and bigger out of it, something which is really you know resonates against those who are uh, of of the prior era. And so I think there the contrast is really interesting. And I would say um, the, the the sequence that stands out to me the the most is at the very uh, you know when. Uh, they have their moment. Uh, the the two uh, Drake and Paris have their moment, and he comes back after Paris comes back from Vienna and rushes into the room to see Drake in bed. Uh, and we should talk about how Drake ends up in bed. Uh, and they grab each other and they have this longing look in each other's eyes, and then they they hold each other cheek to cheek mm-hmm. in a really awkward and uncomfortable way. <laughs> like physically awkward like no two people would ever do that but it's made it, it, even more awkward by the intensity that you I mean that's the that was that homosexual undertone that those these guys were meant to be together uh and all the other relationships are are just sort of in orbit of that although in the book there's another guy who's the one who's who is basically fallen in love with uh with Paris Oh, where was this a, a Viennese it, guy? Was this in Vienna or no, was this in they, the small they town? No, totally, yeah, it's in the small town. They totally cut him out completely hmm. of the movie. But yeah. it, isn't it interesting then? I didn't know that. Isn't it interesting then that we still end up with this, with this, you know, like the implication of a relationship uh, yeah. between these two guys? I mean, that longing between Reagan and, and Cummings, I thought was, I mean, it was palpable. Yeah, it was very interesting uh, the way that, that it read. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those things where it's like, is it coming across as uh, an, an, that innocence of the era or were, were there those undertones there? And it did feel like they're, they were playing with some of those undertones. And it made me wonder, having learned about this other thread in the book that was cut out, if Wood uh, and, uh, and, the, uh, and the writer of the script, um, what was his name again, Casey Robinson, put that in to just kind of give a nod to that element from the book. That's absolutely how I read it. That is absolutely how I read it. Of course, you know, obviously perception of the time, but sure. Um, And, and I can say, I, you know, I, I think I wanted them ultimately to end up together, you know, like (laughs) anyway. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm, I agree with you around Paris. I thought Robert Cummings did a great job, man. That guy was crazy famous in a way that I can't, you know, I don't, I I don't recognize looking at this movie from 1942, but, but near the seventies, eighties, uh, you know, he had a weekly show for 156 episodes of his own show, the Bob Cummings hour. Uh, he was on all kinds of TV all the way up into the, the, um, you know, wild world of Disney color. Uh, Disney's Wonderful World of Color at 1986. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah a 15th said. anniversary celebration of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was uh, all over the place for a lot of years, and uh, this was him yeah. uh, a bit younger. He's, but He was in a couple uh, Hitchcock movies, Saboteur and Dial M for Murder right. also. Right. Uh, so there's Robert Cummings. Let's let's talk about uh, Ronald Reagan since we were kind of on there, on the Drake yeah. thing. I really enjoy him. I mean, I do think this was a, a great performance of him. Um, 
it's a, it was a very interesting I like neither of us knew anything going into this movie so everything that happened in it completely took me by surprise and the part where he uh yeah, he loses all of his money because the banker absconds with all of his uh his trust fund basically along with a bunch of other people's and and then he's working at uh Randy's father's train yard working in the train yard and uh, a pile of something falls on him and and he gets run over by a train although it and he his legs get amputated is what happens and that is the uh you know there's that brilliant line when he wakes up and he looks down at his uh lower extremities and he screams where's the rest of me <laughs> and it was such a such a line for Reagan that he ended up using that as the title of his autobiography that he wrote in the 60s which is a I guess that was a, a big line for him. And uh, and he was so nervous about delivering that line well and not coming across like a fool that he talked to uh, people who had lost appendages about what did it feel like. He had been rehearsing and rehearsing. And the night before he had to do it, he didn't sleep at all. And, uh, and so he was completely exhausted. And Sam Wood had him do it, and and it sounds like he just ended up hitting it right out of the gate, and uh, it was just one of those things because he was so tired, and Sam Wood kind of surprised him by by doing it right now, and and uh, yeah, it sounded like he turned out uh, the performance for the film is uh, is pretty good, I thought. Right, the first take, the first and yeah. only take of that scene, it was it was very powerful. It's a weird line. It's like a like I can't read that line on my screen without kind of laughing a little bit. And yet I thought Reagan, uh, I thought he, he did a good job. He delivered it. Yeah, I absolutely thought he delivered. I thought he did a great job with that line. It's one of those lines that if it's read wrong, it's going to be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it really could have uh, just made a mess of the film. But I do think that he did a good job with it. So. Yeah. yeah, I do too. Um, you know, I thought their relationship was good. I thought I liked his relationship with Randy a lot. In particular, the way I thought he did a fantastic job uh, kind of turning the corner on his loss. You know, when he finally goes to Randy's uh, father and brother and says, I need to talk to you. I need a job. Um, you know, I thought that was a really nice sequence and uh, and a believable sequence for the time that, you know, didn't didn't strike me as, as odd at all. And I thought their re- response is the kind, uh, sort of the kind Irish guys, um, you know, I I really I was warmed by that after you know learning about a lot of darkness in this film. I completely agree. Uh, very very then strong. It, then it got weird uh, when after he loses his legs and the, there's a sequence where all three of uh, the of Randy and her brother and her father are at the bottom right before the where's the rest of me as as Drake is about to wake up or Drake mm-hmm. has has gotten up and she's about to go upstairs and she says well you know he has no money. And the brother says, "Well, he, he doesn't need any money, does he?" You know, the, saying, hey, "We're gonna, we're gonna take care of him. We're gonna let this guy live here." Uh, and I thought that was so awkward. It was like <laughs> the weirdest exchange in the film, in a film full of some kind of weird exchanges. <laughs> That's funny. I guess I don't remember that one. It didn't strike me as oh uh, odd. I guess it was like the weirdest, like Disney thing. Oh. Well, of course, we'll let the amputee live in our upstairs room <laughs> like some sort of a haunted old bat. <laughs> it was just so strange. I couldn't get it out of my head. Oh, that's uh, funny. I, I can only hope that some 
people will be as kind to me when I am. When you get when you're amputated. When I'm amputated. The the um the the story of the amputation though takes us into the story of this sociopathic doctor. Right, right. That's what you get for fooling around with the wrong girl. (laughs) Holy cow. Now, this was Dr. Uh, which doctor was this? This was Dr. Gordon. Dr. Gordon. Yeah. And, and he was, uh, he, he liked Louise and wanted to run away with her, but her parents would have none of it. And uh, Dr. Gordon, who we see at the very beginning of the film treating a patient and without, uh, without anesthesia or without chloroform, I believe. Wasn't this is what they like Paris's father or something? Like when he was a kid? No, there, who was it? Was it, was, it? It, was a, it was just another kid, oh, just okay. a friend that they knew. And the friend was outside crying because <laughs> Dr. Gordon was in operating on his dad and said that, you know, his whatever was wrong with him... Um, They're taking him into point, surgery! Right, it was at a point where they couldn't use chloroform, and so he had to do it with no anesthesia. And so you just hear his dad screaming from the uh, upstairs bedroom. And uh, it turns out, as we learned, that Dr. Gordon is a bit of a, a psychopath who, who likes to play God, basically, and judge you. And if he judges that you are a bad person, then he will perform surgery on you, uh, unnecessary surgeries, possibly, and he will not use anesthesia. And so because of his absolute hatred for Drake, he, ab- uh, he uh, amputates his, both of his legs for no reason even though we find out that yes he turns out his legs are not broken and uh uh you know he just wanted to wanted to do the deed uh and then he kills himself and poisons his daughter killing her too no that's the other that's oh the that's other tower that's tower that's tower claude Rains. okay You're getting the see this is the confused. thing i get the doctors confused and then it's yeah. all then it's all falls apart no dr gordon just he ends up dying yeah of old age and right, his right, right. his wife uh uh judith anderson playing mrs gordon a wonderful judith anderson um who's very memorable from uh, uh what was that uh, other wonderful hitchcock film rebecca that she was in mm-hmm. and um uh, right so then uh, mrs gordon uh is the one who's now trying to keep Louise at bay and 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 brings Paris back into the picture and everything. But yeah, Dr. Gordon died uh, at some point while Paris was away at school. So it is Louise who is is the inciting incident uh, to to bring out the truth of the amputation. Uh, right as as she goes over to Drake as he's convalescing in the in the uh, in Randy's house. And start screaming about it, and and then we get the transformation from Paris, realizing that he's, you know, as he's he found out that in fact this is, uh, this is Doctor Doom, and didn't tell Drake. He thought he was protecting Drake as a psychiatrist; that it was his duty not to tell the truth to his patient in order to protect him. Well, this is when he learns uh, he he comes to the realization that you know he just needs to tell the truth, and and uh, we get his great final speech in the bedroom. Right. The final speech right. in the bedroom, he comes up and he says, now you are, you are my patient. We're not friends. I'm your doctor. And you've got to stick out your chin because I'm going to hit you <laughs> as hard as I'm gonna, I can. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give you a wallop. Uh, yes, I'm going to hit you in the face as hard as I can with a boot, uh, a metaphorical <laughs> boot. And uh, we'll just see how you do. And tells him the truth. And that's, that's, the, that's the end of the film as Reagan goes into this um, laughter and everybody hugs and all is well in the land. Right. Yep. 
How did that uh, last scene take you? That's when I wrote, "Hey, it's a triumph for mental health," and I don't think I was being uh, <laughs> I was being authentic when I wrote that. It's it felt very um, like saccharine Hollywood ending sort of thing, but at the same time. I was so relieved to have it end like that after all the darkness that it, <laughs> I had for for two hours. I'm like, oh, and and to see uh, to see Drake's reaction to this, and actually to have, I, I it was a great character moment actually because having the truth be the element that actually is is what Drake needed to transform and actually let go of what had happened so that he can finally move forward to a place where he can get out of this room, he can he can become the businessman he was just, you know, and not look at the fact that he is uh, you know, this poor little guy who has no legs. And I actually really ended up liking that um that the transformation with him because of that speech. And so as saccharine as it was, it did work well for me. Yeah, I you know, I I, I agree with you from the standpoint that I just needed to have the plug pulled on this movie. <laughs> by the end, I was exhausted. I was exhausted by all of that, and and it just sort of moved through, got us to the happy part, and and it was uh, it, it ended up being a satisfying uh, ending, particularly as you know we we get this new character uh, introduced uh, living right. in in his house. This was uh, Anna uh, living in in Paris's house uh, with her dad. Um, and uh, he just sort of falls in love with her rather quickly after he returns from Venice and she sort of leads him to tell the truth and then he runs back to her and that's that's the way the film ends. He runs across and hugs this new woman that we've only learned about for the last like 15 minutes, this 19-year-old. And uh, yeah, and, that and was that was one of the weakest parts really of the weak, film. Really weak, really uh, weak. Yeah, I, it, I mean, that all felt rather shoehorned in. And that was one of those ones where I was like, maybe in the book, you know, the, the end is extended out a little longer. Yeah. There's more development of that relationship and of that character. As it was here, it did feel very shoehorned just to... To get us um, through this a, part. Well, A, give him the... Um, yeah, give him kind of that reconnection with his house and with kind of a, a, a somebody similar to Cassie, and then B to have kind of a voice of reason sitting on his shoulder, so right, to speak. Right. She has a lovely voice of reason. She did. She is she a lovely voice fine. of reason. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, we haven't uh, said a single thing about James Wong House so far in the film. I feel like we should do that before we wrap up. Oh, okay. Don't you, Did think? you want to talk about anybody else? Did you? I, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, that was a, a signal change for you. I, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Who else do you want to talk about? Well, I, you know, I just, Anne Sheridan, I thought was great. Um, she's been in a lot of films. Um, she was in They Drive by Night, a nice little uh, noirish film from, um, from 1940. And uh, she is also in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which we've talked about. She was yeah. uncredited as a pretty woman walking past the barbershop. <laughs> that's too funny. I think that's very funny. So, yeah, an, a woman with a great career. I really enjoyed her as Randy. I thought she did a great job in the filming. Mean, on the whole, I, I think I really enjoyed uh, most of the cast. I, I think some of them were given more to do than others. It really just depended on, on how much uh, the role was drawn out from the book. Um, Claude Rains, I really enjoyed as Dr. Tower. I thought he brought a nice darkness to it, uh, to that role, without having to even go into all of the incest and all that. There was enough darkness there that really gave me something to think about, about the relationship between him and his wife and his daughter. Yeah, yeah. 
I agree with that. Yes. He was a treat to see on screen. Always is. Always is. And a very busy time for him because yep. he did uh, Now Voyager this year and Casablanca right afterward. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Pretty busy dude. Look at that. Very busy. Still only but- 77 credits. I mean, it's just, well, I, I imagined him uh, being up in the uh, high hundreds. I think he's one of those guys who had just a very busy period. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was he was pretty much nonstop from the mid '30s to I don't know the the end of the '40s, beginning of the '50s, and right. then I think he he is a little more sporadic. Yeah. Uh, who else lights you up in this film? Anybody else um, specifically? No, I think that was it. I think that was it. All right. So now let's let's talk a little bit about our benefactor. Yes. How did this film stack up uh, cinematographically to uh, our film last week? I really liked the look of this film. I, I read somewhere uh, somebody described it as Midwestern Gothic cinematography, which I think fits it really nicely. I've also read comparisons to film noir. Um, it has a nice darkness to the tone of this town that I think was very fitting for this particular story, a, a, a story about a town that has a lot of dark elements. There were a lot of scenes where we'd go into houses and you had some fairly dramatic lighting. Dr. How- Tower always had a very shadowy look with him. And I really enjoyed the way that he, uh, that uh, James Wong Howe played with that uh, throughout the film. I think the other area where that really, his, his work, his lighting work uh, is, is really on display is in the bedroom once Drake is amputated. I mean, the, the way the lighting, the tone of the lighting changes from the discovery of his amputation when he wakes up over the course of the next, you know, 30 minutes in the film, it becomes progressively more open and inviting um, from the periods where he's really struggling and he's turning his face to the can- to the wall, uh, we have this really harsh kind of nightmare lighting to the very end when all three, uh, you know, when Paris comes back and they're talking about the great new plan that they have to to get out of the house and and go live in their new new place in their new housing development. It's bright and open and inviting, and it's it is a you know that room takes on a character of its own, uh, which I think is important because the you know the drama of Drake's character. Um, he is going through this period where all he wants is is to, you know, he, he wants Randy to promise him that he's he never has to leave that room. He's embarrassed and he's he is shamed and he, uh, you know, he, he is feeling weak. And the light, I think, really talks to this, you know, his strength coming back to him. I thought that was a really powerful kind of sequence. Also, the two women, Cassie and Louise, um, as as they are both kind of going through their own types of madness, um, just the the lens choices there, and just even having some diffusion, um, kind of really had uh, really added to this sense of these women who are in this world where they're powerless. Uh, at, at this period of time, really, they're just powerless against uh, any sort of man. Oh, you know these doctors who happen to be their fathers who are controlling them. Did you notice any of the deep focus tricks that we talked about last week? I did notice some deep focus. Um, I'm trying to remember where. I think there was some, well, there's definitely some when he's like running through the uh, the orchard around his house and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I know I did catch it in a couple other places, but I can't quite remember where I saw it. I, uh, yeah, I can't remember either. 
yeah. hoping you'd nailed that down. But I, I want to say there was, there was, yeah, there, there <laughs> were elements with the kids, I think, playing around in the beginning. Um, and that's another thing. I really enjoyed the cast of kids that they brought for all the younger versions of these people. I thought they were just fantastic kid actors. Right, right. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. And we, we only see them, well, we see them for, I, I guess it's, gosh, the first 20 minutes of the film. Yeah, it was about. Um, yeah, we meet, and, you know, I think they did a great job transitioning the kids to, uh, to their grown up counterparts. I, you know, I, that was one thing that I thought, yeah, I, I can pick these kids out. Yeah, I agree. Uh, to their, uh, to how they grew up. Um, uh, let's see what else from Dr. Howe. He's not, um, he's not a real doctor. I don't, yeah, I don't think he's a real doctor. Um, although he had plenty of other doctors to talk about in this film, but um, I don't know. I, I I really liked the look. I thought he did a great job capturing this uh, this world in black and white that made it feel very realistic, but at the same time a dark undertone. And it all worked really well for the uh, this story. Yeah, I I really like the comparison to American Gothic. I mean, or the the allusion to the American Gothic. This you know the way they capture the uh, the trains. Uh, and the homes, uh, particularly in the doctor's offices, I think it's just really striking. Very, very dark, dark black point. Yes. Uh, really cool. Absolutely. Uh, anything else to talk about on this one? Well, the big other thing that I wanted to talk about is the music. Um, this is, this is uh, it's a pretty important score in the world of... Uh, film and some people uh, I I don't know if I agree but a lot of people say that this is one of the best film scores ever created um, Eric Wolfgang Korngold uh, wrote the score for this and it's it's a wonderful theme it's very memorable it works really well in context of the film um, the thing that it's most noted for however is the fact that um, John Williams, really uh, was inspired by it. Although if you listen to the opening of Star Wars, he really just flat out ripped it off and used the actual theme from this and then just extended it, which I think was really interesting. Because you know, You're right. We should post this Star Wars versus King's Row YouTube video. It's, it's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, it, I haven't seen the video, but I, I've heard both of the pieces and it's just funny how much John Williams, um, you know, quote was inspired by uh this music by eric Korngold, but it's uh it is beautiful music it is very memorable and i love it and it's just it's funny because as i watch this movie every time it comes up i just keep thinking about star wars <laughs> <laughs> oh the parallels don't end there i'll tell you luke and leia just weird <laughs> More incest. Weird. It just doesn't end. That's right. <laughs> trying to, you know, the father trying to kill his son. <laughs> yes. Right. And he gets his legs chopped off. <laughs> <laughs> he gets his legs chopped off, Andy. <laughs> oh, I think George Lucas watched this a few too many times. Fantastic. We just uncovered <laughs> something brilliant. Yes, we did. If you like uh, Star Wars, you'll love King's Row. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'd love it. I uh I how did are we are we ready to move on to the details? Yes, let's All move right. on. To how did details. it do? How did it perform? This film uh it 
did well for itself. It didn't quite crack the top 10 for the year, but it was still a hit for 1942. It came out, unfortunately, um, like right after uh, right after the war and everything had kind of gone underway, and a lot of people felt that it was really bad timing for this film. Um, but it still was a hit for the year. It cost, from what I found, just over a million dollars, which is about $15.5 million today. And then it went on to domestically gross about $5 million, which is about uh, 70, almost $73 million. So, yeah, I'd say it did uh, it did pretty well for itself. It made about $450,000 per finished minute. Now, if I'm, if I'm not correct, there was a sequel to the book, Paris and King's Row or something. Uh, I believe it wasn't it something that his daughter. Yeah, uh, it was it was written with him, at least credited with him and his daughter. Oh, Uh, I don't know anything about the story, but at 70, you know, adjusted dollars, 70 million adjusted dollars. I'm sort of surprised we didn't get a sequel. uh, Yeah, right, right. Man, that would be gloomy. So it was just a few years ago that Mildred Pierce was uh, remade as a, uh, I can't remember what it was, it was Showtime miniseries, something like that, um, maybe HBO. But this was a, a five-episode story that was able to tell a much fuller version of the story that was not able to be told at the time when the movie originally came out, which I believe was also back in the 40s. So I can see it, it I can seems, see David Fincher taking over King's Row. That would be interesting. I'm all for it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I say we rank it. Let's do it. All right. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can play along just like Ben Lott. And you can watch this movie, and you can rank this movie, and let's see if we can uh, get another uh, another ranking that is just like Ben Lott's. Number five. Here we go. All right. King's <laughs> Row. <laughs> King's Row or The Road Warrior? The Road Warrior. Yes, The Road Warrior. I mean, I do really like King's Row, but we'll see how high it climbs. Uh, King's Row or Pete's favorite, Taxi Driver. <laughs> I, You know, I'm going to go King's Row. I am too, actually. Really? I know, I'm surprising myself, but I I really did enjoy this film. King's Row or La Vie en Rose? I think I'll still do King's Row. I'll do King's Row too. King's Row or The Night of the Hunter? The Night of the Hunter. Yep, Night of the Hunter for sure. King's Row or The Maltese Falcon? Hmm. Probably got to go with Bogey on this one. I'm going to go with Maltese Falcon. Yeah. King's Row or Driving Miss Daisy? Driving Miss Daisy. talked about that one in a while. Yeah, I think I will pick Driving Miss Daisy as well. Uh, King's Row or 500 Days of Summer? Hmm. Do I think I'm 500 Days of Summer. That was pretty creative. Okay. You're good with that one? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll let that go. King's Row or Syriana? Oh, jeez. I'm going to do, I'm gonna do Syriana. Wow. Where did I, what did I think of Syriana? Do you remember what I thought of Syriana? Well, I, you loved it, Pete. <laughs> I can't I remember that show. It wasn't even that long ago. I know it wasn't. I do I like, don't the, I do like that Clooney. Yeah. Man, when Clooney? he gets his nails dug out there. Oh, ouch. 
Yeah. All right. I'm going to go with that. Two movies full of torture. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I'm going to go with Syriana. All right. Well, there we are. Number 118 out of 187. Yeah, that's probably about right. Yeah, I, it's it's a good place for that one to live. Yeah, I did enjoy that one quite a bit. I did too. I, I enjoyed it enough. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the experience it enough, yeah. of of watching it. And I th- I feel better having gotten this one under my belt. How about that? I am glad to have it in my list of films that I have seen because yeah. I, I do think it's definitely one worth watching. I didn't I, until you. This was uh, your suggestion as we built the James Long Howe list, and I. Uh, I hadn't. I didn't even know that I needed to watch this film. I don't know if it was my suggestion. I think we looked at the highest ranked films uh, that he had done as a DP, and we picked from that. And I think because it was a pretty blind pick, because I knew nothing about. I don't think I even knew this film. No. I mean, yeah, I knew it existed, but yeah, I don't. Uh, I think it was one of those. Hey, this is ranked high. Let's watch that one. That's. I, we've got a couple of those coming up. I think. What is it? Where do we go from here? Um, We're going to be jumping a little bit farther forward, and we're going to be talking about the fantastic film, Sweet Smell of Success. Oh, yeah. 1957. Uh, This is good. This is uh, a little uh, Tony Curtis. Burt Lancaster. Yeah, yeah. Alexander McKendrick. This is is a uh, dark film. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see this one. This is good. Um, so that's next week. Um, until then, I'm going to go to bed. All right. I've got someone's uh, legs in the other room. I've got to go amputate. George Bratton says of the King's Row DVD, the only good thing about King's Row is the incredibly beautiful score composed by Eric Wolfgang Korngold. The movie itself is stiff, poorly acted, badly written, and features cheap sets with fake-looking backdrops. The whole thing looks cheap. Maybe, maybe money for making movies was scarce in 1942. Big disappointment after hearing about this film for many years. It was, however, interesting to see Ronald Reagan as a young man long before he met Nancy and wound up in the White House by the score... Forget the movie. Ouch. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? Uh, and, and, you know, uh, there's even a, a comment after that one from T-Rock, who says, after reading King's Row, I was curious about the movie. The review is correct without the political jab. <laughs> one more thing, he says, the casting is horrible. Forget the movie by the book. So wow. first, by the score, and then forget the movie. And once you've forgotten the movie, buy the book and hope that that doesn't remind you once again of the movie or or the score. Whatever. Uh, or the actors. Or, or the, the actors and the cast. <laughs> Too funny. What's yours? Well, I've got a two-star by Audrey D. Anderson, who says, The Greatest Generation Speaks. I am a member of the greatest generation, and I abhor the language the indecency and anti-American and anti-Christian attitude of what is going on in this great nation. I refuse to listen or watch all the hideous stuff going on under the title, quote, entertainment. 
I am, however, very happy to be able to select decent films and books from you. Audrey D. Anderson. Wait, that's, that's the end? That's the end. The best part of hers is, uh, is the comments. And exactly how do your comments constitute a review? <laughs> the other one, and what the hell does any of this nonsense have to do with King's Row? It's a place to review films, music, books, etc. Not to give your view of the nation. <laughs> not to Audrey D. Anderson. Yes, I have a feeling she might be from Fulton. Oh! Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we're going to do a little game. I'm going to name a series from season four, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Didn't we just do this in season three? We're going to do this one as a speed round. Here we go. Terry Gilliam. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Jason Reitman. Labor Day. Comedy by the Brothers Cohen. Oh, brother. Stephen King. Ah, uh, the Shining. Uh, Cujo. The Dead Zone. App Pupil. Misery. Stand by me. What else did we cover? Oh, you got one more on Audible. Carpenter? Ah, Christine! Christine! Hey, you got it. We've covered lots of great movies that started as books, and most of those are on Audible. Books like The Exorcist, Requiem for a Dream, The Bishop's Wife, The Poseidon Adventure. Syriana, Million Dollar Baby, L.A. Confidential, Double Indemnity, Detour, The Thin Man. So many great movies from so many great sources. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 